This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Good morning, Melbourne. You look beautiful. It's such an honour to be here. Thank you very much, Steve, for such a kind introduction and for inviting me and my family to come and be here with you today from London. So I went to the Melbourne Museum on the first day that we arrived and I spent a tiny amount of time trying to immerse myself in your country's very complex history. And it feels really important to me now knowing the tiny amount that I do to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin nations, simply because for me to be here today, that feels like the right thing to do. So my name is Lauren Curry. Online, I'm known as Red Jotter. So please talk to me online, but my mum is listening. She's my first Twitter follower, so be kind. <laughs> Two things that I want you to know about me before we go any further. Yes, I have a Scottish accent. I grew up in a place called Ayrshire, near Glasgow. And the second thing is I believe in better. So the really simple, unwavering belief that things can be better is what motivates me through all the work that I do. And I think it's really easy to forget that in today's not so optimistic world. Because in fact, real progress is happening and there are reasons for optimism everywhere we look. So the reality is that the world is the most peaceful that it's ever been. Global poverty is falling dramatically. Iceland made it the law that companies have to prove that they're paying men and women equally. Wonder Woman, the film, became the highest grossing female-directed movie ever made. And Australia voted for gay marriage. So I'm optimistic and I'm a designer. This is uh, my background. It's the mindset and the process that I use to try and do good things in the world. I'm a designer, but I'm also all of these things. And I actually had to add a new word onto this slide when I was preparing this presentation because I had a baby boy seven months ago. So I am a mother and I'm also all of these other things. And something that I think designers and creative communities are quite guilty of is we love to shove each other into boxes and find nice neat labels for us to sit in. We want to decide what type of designer we are and we only want to play in that space or what sector we work in or what problem we solve. And I think that doesn't serve us very well because our gift as designers is our complexity and our ability to respond and react to the context that we're working within. And I think the world would feel better for us if we would stop putting ourselves in boxes and stop putting these labels on each other. 
So over the next few days at UX Australia, I want to you to embrace all of the different things that you are and all of the bits of yourself that you bring to your work. And it feels only right that given I've actually not had a proper night's sleep for 5,510 hours, <laughs> so be kind to me, make me tea, I love warm and milky tea. But this is Atlas, and I want to share a little experiment with you, an idea that I had, because now that I'm a parent, I hope to continue to do the work that I do. I hope to continue to travel the world and talk on stages, and hopefully Atlas will come with me. And I had an idea that imagine if every audience we went to visit left him nuggets of wisdom on the internet. Now, if nobody does this, I'll know this was a really ridiculous idea. But if you do, I think it could be quite lovely to show him tweets and messages from people around the globe in years to come. So we've made a hashtag, you know how it works. So the red thread throughout all of the work that I do is activism. And this sense of activism has definitely been amplified since I became a mother. And it's made me really think lately about the people who design our world and the people who create our physical environment and the structures and the systems that we work in. Because those people are overwhelmingly male, privileged and pale. Imagine what our cities would look like if mothers had more of a say in what they, in what they were. There would be far more ramps everywhere. I cried the first time that I had to stand at the bottom of a flight of stairs and wait helplessly for a random stranger to walk past and offer to carry my buggy and my baby up the stairs. Imagine if people over 60 designed our public spaces. We would have comfortable places to sit. Imagine if teenagers had more of a say in designing the world that we live in. Charging our phone would be a human right. So I'm 100% committed to tiny, boring, daily acts of activism. I always make an effort to give up my seat on public transport to people who look like they need a seat more than me. When I walk down a busy street, I try and be very conscious of walking around people who are less able than me. And I go out of my way to say thank you to service providers to experiences, because the world makes it really easy to complain, but actually it's quite difficult to say thank you. When was the last time you filled in a thank you form? But quite rightly, the, you don't get any medals for this stuff. You don't get any medals for voting, for holding your local officials to account, for challenging your racist uncle across the dinner table. But these are all small things that we can do and we can commit to doing, no matter the excuses of how fucked up the whole system is in itself, or the status of the racist uncle, we can honor the extraordinary activists that we respect so much by at least committing to doing small things every day that are completely within our power. And I don't think there's any other quality essential to being this way in the world other than the quality of perseverance. 
And I think this conference is such a symbol of perseverance, given that we are here on the 10th year of this event. And Steve shared some nuggets and insights into actually this is a difficult thing to do. It's hard. All of these things are hard. But look what you can achieve if you persevere and keep going every day. So I invite you to look at the things that you do in your everyday life and look at ways to infect those with progressive values as fervently as you stick to your design values and your design principles when you're crafting new things in the world. So I'm going to talk to you today about three things. Power, the power that you and I have, and the great things that we can do with that power. Prototyping. Now, we all know that prototyping is gold dust. It's the tools and the skills that we use to bring ideas to life, to bring form to the unimaginable. But I think prototyping can be an even bigger secret weapon for us as human beings. Imagine a world where we could prototype our own behaviors and prototype how we are in the world in a much more purposeful way. Because the way that we all learn is by doing things that probably won't work. And that's such a gift. And finally, I want to talk about change because I believe that that is our job. Our job is to make change happen, make change easy for ordinary yet extraordinary people and to connect with people in a way that leaves them better off than when we found them. So before I get into to those topics, you'll probably have noticed that I have guests on stage with me this morning. And I want to just talk to you for a moment about who these wonderful women are and why they're on stage with me. So Jasha, at the end there, is a product designer. And she has spoken in front of a small team at work once. And the thought of speaking in front of a room full of people as big as this room fills her with dread. But she has got a message to share with the world she cares very passionately about exposing and connecting everybody in the world to the power and potential of people with disabilities. Because her brother is in a wheelchair and he is at home and can't look after himself. But actually he's got hundreds of friends around the world and he uses the internet to teach them English and he lives a very thriving life. Now being on stage with me today, being up front, is Jasha's way of getting comfortable of being in front of a not scary crowd so that one day, it might be next week, it might be in five years, it doesn't really matter, but one day she will be closer to finding her confidence to tell her story on stage one day the way I'm telling my story to you today. And next to Jasha we have Yilu. Yilu is a, is a local master student She's 22, she's never spoken in front of a crowd before. And she often gets asked by people about her transition from studying a foreign language to studying information technology. And she's actually really excited about what she learned through that journey. And she wants to share that on a global stage one day. But she's never had the opportunity to be on a raised platform where 840 people sit silently and listen to what she says. 
So today, being up front for Yilu is a chance for her to experience the stage without any pressure of performing. Next to Yilu, we have Ashley. And Ashley is a UX designer, a front-end developer. And as an introvert, what she's doing right now is one of her biggest fears in the whole world. She's been to UX Australia for the last two years, and she can count on one hand the number of people that she spoke to. Today, for her, is about taking a step towards feeling more confident in finding her own voice in stages like this, but also the small stages that we find ourselves in at conferences, the small talk around the coffee table. And she's got a message to tell the world and that we need to start taking our planet seriously. There is no planet B. We need to start really thinking about how we can work and live more ethically. So that's the message that she would want to give to the world. And Anna is a digital UX specialist and she has never had the opportunity to speak on stage except in high school. And she wanted to be up front because she said to me, I need this help. I need a stepping stone. I need guidance to conquer my fears, to spread my wings, share my voice, and one day help me share my own vision on a public stage. Now, the reason that they're here with me today is because they're part of a movement called Upfront, which is something that I invented three years ago due to my frustration at the world stages being dominated by white old men. Because we need to make conference stages more diverse and more accessible. And this is a very complex problem. There's people doing PhDs in this stuff. I do not have all the answers. But one thing that I do know is in our professional lives, when we want to get better at something, we go to a workshop or we go on a training course or we job shadow somebody. You can't do that with public speaking until now. So these women will share my stage. They will share my power. They will be part of this experience, but they will be under no pressure to perform. Because this is what stages were invented for. Thank you. Feel good? good? Stages were invented to put people in a spotlight, to raise individuals up, to magnify normally one man's message. And I want to change that. I want stages to shine a light on hundreds of people and lift everybody up and magnify voices that are hidden. I want stages to show lots of different versions of what power looks like. So it's your job right now to be the world's best audience. I want you to make these women feel amazing because they are being so brave right now and they're making such a statement about diversity and what our future could look like. So thank you for being here. Excellent. So I want to share a snippet of my own journey to what led me being here today. And it started with a very strong passion for Scotland. And my parents don't really know where this came from. But I've always really cared about how I can use my design skills, my creativity to make Scotland a better place. 
And I wanted to do that through product design. I had a dream that I would be the next Steve Jobs and I would make an object that would change the world and make me very rich. And then I discovered service design. Then I realized that I could use the same methodology and principles and processes to design systems and experiences and services. And that led to me really grappling with how can we craft an alternative future for Scotland? What does that look like? So after I graduated, together with my business partner, Sarah Drummond, we created Snook. And Snook is one of, was Scotland's first social service design for social change agency. And we were on a mission to bring service design to Scotland, specifically bring service design to Scotland's public sector. And I ran Snook with Sarah for seven years. I left the business a few years ago and Sarah now runs Snook in offices in London and Glasgow. And I'm really proud that now we have our first minister, Nicola Sturgeon, talking publicly in a recent government report about designing services with, not for people. I think that's pretty epic. A project that we created at Snook that I'm really proud of is one that was about thinking, how can we make our relationship with the police better? Now this was nearly 10 years ago, so the police didn't use social media, and during our discovery work, we had constables say, I'll happily give my guys guns, but I am not giving them a Twitter account. Really what we were building was a very simple platform where people like you and I could log on and have a conversation with our local police force. And our pilot ended up making BBC News. And it's not over a particularly sexy problem. Parking is quite boring. But what is exciting about this is I think it's a brilliant example of design as a tool for democracy. It's a brilliant example of two, at the time, 23-year-old women with a vision for a very simple yet powerful idea and making that happen in a very hierarchical, male-dominated system such as the UK's police forces. Another project that I am really proud of and had such fun making is No Sugar. And that was inspired by my passion for fixing our broken relationship with sugar. In Scotland, you see people drinking iron brew on the train for their breakfast. Probably don't tweet that, but it is a thing that we do. And it's very, it's very bad for our, for our bodies and our minds. And I had a vision, I had an idea of imagine if there was a shop on the high street where anybody could just walk in there and have a conversation with somebody about sugar and buy food with no sugar in it. It sounds painfully simple, but when we went out to the streets of Glasgow and asked people, would you shop in a no sugar shop? Most of them said yes. So we convinced a local shopping centre to let us borrow an old shop floor so that we could prototype what a no sugar shop would look like. And we started to sketch what that journey would be and how people would experience the space and what they would engage with and how it would help them through the, their journey of realizing what their sugar intake was and how they could make things better. 
and it was opened by our local MP. We had an army of volunteers who came from all over to help us make it happen. And I want to show you a short video of what happened during the No Sugar Shop prototype. Sugar makes it easy for you to live a low sugar lifestyle. For two days only, on the 8th and 9th of August, the No Sugar Shop opened to test an idea that has the potential to change our nation's relationship with sugar. The prototype challenged Scotland's collective sweet tooth and shone a light on the amount of hidden sugars we are all consuming every day. We invited you to try our new products and services and give us feedback. A phenomenal number of Dundonians had seriously underestimated their sugar intake and we're really keen to fix it. Hundreds of you pinned your profile to the No Sugar Scale, talking to us about your relationship with the sweet stuff. You took No Sugar challenges in the hundreds and you spent time with our No Sugar expert asking more specific questions about your diet. educates, informs and inspires citizens to rethink their relationship with sugar and take positive action. Let today be the day that you begin to know sugar. Visit our website at nosugar.org. So the reason I share that I hope is to inspire you to eat less sugar, but also think about the, the possibilities of prototyping and what happens when you take a prototype off of a screen. In the UK, the government and charities are spending millions and millions of pounds trying to get ordinary people to think about their sugar intake. And they were blown away by the impact we had over two days, just a small bunch of designers. And the reason that we had that impact is because we started from a place of empathy and a place of really listening to what people wanted and how people felt about their relationship with sugar. So one of the, the latest projects I've been involved in is an organization called Good Lab. So I've just spent a couple of years there as director of design. And Good Lab is a really special organization. It's a collaboration of 11 of the UK's biggest charities have all come together to try and respond to the really complex challenges that the entire charity sector as a whole is facing. Now in the UK, the law has changed, so charities can no longer use citizens' data the way that they used to. As consumers, we have high, high, the most high demands on charities that we've ever had. And it means that business models that they have relied on for decades aren't working anymore. And they realize that actually this is gonna require some 
epic transformation and that not one single charity is going to achieve that on its own. So the founders of Good Lab convinced 11 of the big charities to club together to genuinely commit to collaboration, which I think is really exciting, and fund a small team of us to come up with business ideas, very commercial ideas, that could raise 250 million pounds of profit for the charity sector every single year. So that was my job for two years, and it was as difficult as it sounds. 250 million is a big number. But the brief is so powerful, and I think very progressive. And I was actually so humbled by how genuinely open to collaboration and new ways of working the charities that we worked with were. So the way that we worked is that every three months we shipped a new business into the world with the theory that over three years we would ship multiple businesses. Most of them wouldn't work, but one of them would. And I want to share with you just a couple of businesses that we launched into the world that I'm proud of. So experience something different is a web platform that's built on the insight that as people we are hungry for authenticity. We want to buy experiences and not stuff. We all know this. But authenticity is an asset that the charity sector has in a really unique way. They have such a competitive advantage if we think about what their authenticity is and where it comes from. So we crafted a service that would enable you and I to log on and buy an experience for our friends and our family. And through buying that experience, we would raise money for charities. So we might go and buy a ticket to spend an afternoon with the team who train guide dog puppies. And those funds would go back to the charities who own the business. Another one that we launched is called On Hand. So this is a service that helps older people request help with household tasks from volunteers that have been security checked. So in the UK, almost all support for older people is privatised, outsourced by the NHS and local councils to private providers. And as a result, the work is poorly paid, phenomenally expensive. Two million people in the UK have had to reduce their working hours to look after one of their older relatives. So we built this product so the older people and their relatives could ask for help when they needed it in a way that suits them. And 80% of the fee from that exchange goes to some of the best loved charities in the country. So if you're interested in Good Lab, they're still going really strong and they're, um, you can find them online at Good Lab. I'm part of a, a charity called Pregnant Then Screwed. And I recently gave a talk in Sweden where somebody raised their hand and asked me to explain the name of the the name of the charity, which I just handed over to the Swedish host. Um, maternity discrimination is a big problem. 54,000 women in the UK lose their jobs every single year simply for being pregnant. One in five mothers in the UK experience harassment or negative comments related to pregnancy or flexible working. And if this is scaled up, that could mean up to 100,000 mothers a year. So Jolie, the founder of Pregnant Then Screwed, a woman that I'm very proud to call my friend, 
organized an event called the March of the Mummies. So last Halloween, we dressed up as mummies and we marched for the rights of working mothers. We asked companies to report how many flexible working requests they get and how many are granted. We asked them to give fathers access to six weeks non-transferable paternity leave at 90% of their salary. And we asked the government for subsidized childcare from six months old rather than three months old. And of course, for the self-employed, as I'm sure many of you in the room are, to have access to statutory shared paternal leave. Right now, we live in a world where many of my peers and my friends are scared to become a parent. And that's not okay. It's my transition, did you get it? I'm really excited about my transition. <laughs> so the transition is, is to mark the, a new exciting thing for me in that the last month I took on a new role and leapt into a new team uh, called Nobel. And we are focused on making work better. So the truth is that 99% of you are going to spend the majority of your waking life with the people that you work with, not your family and friends. You're going to work inside a building that's got someone else's name on the front of it. But that doesn't mean that your work can't have meaning or permanence. But I believe that the way that we work isn't working. And I feel like we all know this. We can see it in ourselves and we can see it in each other. Burnout, frustration, blame, bullying, detachment, and failure. And then you try leaving, but then you find the same conditions in another team over and over and over again in lots of different roles in lots of different organizations. And as consultants and designers trying to tackle this problem, we see this dysfunction in equal measure among Fortune 500 companies and the darlings of Silicon Valley. No one is immune. And it's not that organizations or teams are broken, it's that the reality of the way we work isn't working. So that is what Nobel is dedicated to, to fixing. And the name Nobel comes from a really lovely story. So there's a Swedish chemist, engineer, inventor, businessman called Alfred Nobel, and he was known for inventing dynamite. And in 1888, his brother died, and the newspaper published Alfred's obituary instead of his brother's. And it said, Dr. Alfred Nobel, who became rich by finding ways to kill more people faster than ever before, died yesterday. And it made him really question his legacy. And it made him change things, and he signed his last will and testament and the bulk of his estate to establish the Nobel Peace Prize. Now, my first job when I joined Nobel was to write my own obituary. You should try it. It's very difficult. So we were founded in 2014 because our founders believe that meaningful work is a universal human right and that that right is at risk inside most organizations. And one of the reasons that I've been motivated and inspired to move into this space is that I really see strong patterns and signals that tell me that we're moving into a third phase of service design. 
Now, the first phase was educating and teaching. The second phase was about developing um, internal design capacity. And I think the third phase is about designing systems and culture that are fit for purpose. Now, I've been working in service design for 10 years, and I've been an avid evangelist for each of these phases. And I really believe that this third phase is so important. Because despite the fact that we are now in boardrooms and we're now on the cover of HBR, even the most exceptional ideas, fantastic prototypes, do not stand a chance against institutional dysfunction. So if you don't want your ideas to end up in the ash heap of history, if you don't want to kick yourself every time someone beats you to implementing an idea, if you don't want to watch your revolutionary startup implode on itself, you have to rethink the way your team and your organization works together just as passionately as you think about your design process. Intuitively, we all know that design should serve a purpose and fulfill a strategy. So why do we draw the same boxes for every organization? Why do we prototype our ideas, but not our behaviors? We spend so much time learning to sprint and hack and ship and so little time on ourselves and our team and our culture. And that means we see things like long hours, lack of sleep. These things have become a badge of honor, but I think really they should be a mark of stupidity. And the irony of it all is we encourage failed product ideas, but we punish failed ways of working. We all love making new ideas in the world. We love talking to customers. We love testing ideas. But we hate when that work is killed off by a disgruntled employee or internal opinions kill a new idea before it actually gets anywhere. And I hate that employees are often incentivized against change and against collaboration. And this is ironic because if our product and our service doesn't fulfill our users' needs, then you know, our discipline really teaches us to be ruthless in our dedication to making sure it does. But if our work isn't fulfilling our own needs and the needs of our teammates, well, that's, also, that's gonna be our fault for not adequately grasping how important it is to also design how you work with the people in your team. So something that we've been talking a lot about is decisions. And how teams make decisions is a great symbol of their culture. And you'll all know that the more people you try and work with, the bigger your team becomes, decision making gets harder. So as you add more people, reaching consensus can become really slow. You can often have to make compromises. And in response, some people decide to give the highest paid person the hippo. They get to decide. Or the people at the top decide, and that message is, comes down the hierarchy for people at the bottom to execute. But most of us think that there's, you know, there's a one-size-fits-all process for decision-making. And actually, that's really not true. There's such a vast, varied way. There's so many ways that we can make decisions, not just consensus and not just one person of authority having the final say. So we've built a, a tool that you can download for free using the 
the URL, and it's a conversational bot that helps you and your teams make decisions. So it exposes you to different decision models so that you can try it out with your teams. So once you add it to Slack, it'll ask you some questions, and hopefully you can share it with your team and start a new conversation. Because learning how to make good decisions is actually really difficult. And it's really rare that each of us as individuals and teams actually pause to think about how do we make decisions and what role do I play in that process? And there's so much more than just learning what your team can do when you all fit around a table, but also the benefit from collective, the collective intelligence of your team and how things can speed up when you actually have an open conversation about how you want to make decisions. So do have a play with that and tweet me and let, let me know how you go. So what we're, what we're on a mission to do is to change, to change the world by changing organizations. We can make the world a better place by helping organizations make themselves a better place. And this is, this is what it's inspired by. For me, this is a really beautiful metaphor for hopefully all of the work that I've shared with you today. Because all of the problems that I've talked about and the areas that a lot of us are working within are really complex. Complex adaptive systems, just like this beautiful flock of starlings. And I've become really fascinated by this natural organic system that I think we can really learn from. How do you make birds flock in pursuit of prey and in avoidance of predators? How do you make teams within organizations help the organization adapt to change? This is such a complex group behavior. Nobody teaches birds how to flock together. There's no centralized command structure. There's no manager flying around. Yet birds which have had no experience with each other can inhibit complex patterns of collaboration and communication. And even more astounding is that each flock is constantly inventing new patterns of flight in response to their environment. Now there's an artificial intelligence researcher called Craig Reynolds was on a mission to try and simulate this behavior to try and understand it better. And he built this simulation called Boyd's in 1987. Now, of course, he couldn't just program the boids to flock because that would be cheating because that's not how it works in nature. But his first hypothesis was there's probably going to need to be a shit ton of rules to get these boids to do what we want them to do. And after many failed attempts, he realized that actually they only needed three rules. Separation. Don't hit each other. Alignment stay together, and cohesion. Steer to move towards the average position, the center mass. Now with these three local, simple, and shared rules, a group of relatively connected, disconnected individuals could form a dynamic and useful group behavior. His simulation proves that complex behavior emerges from simple conditions. And ideally, this is what we want your organizations and your teams to look like. We need local rules that value individuals and value their knowledge, and we need simple rules. How many of you work for a company that has rules or policies? How many of you could recite them off the top of your head? 
So we have, we have a client who has a 450-page uh, staff handbook, and they pay people to maintain that handbook. The only people who read the handbook are the people that maintain it. So I'd like us to pause for a moment, and I'd like you to talk to the, your neighbor on either side of you about a local, simple, and shared rule that you use either at work, in your relationship, or in your family life, anything at all. Take a moment. How you doing? Thank you. Would anybody like to share? Would anybody like to share? No, no, no. No surprises. And where, what context does that rule live in? Mm-hmm. Okay, husband bought Lego without con uh, consent from the wife, didn't go well. So, no surprises. <laughs> any, other, any other shared rules? Yep. Care for each other. Tell me a bit about that. Yeah, so caring, coming from a place of care makes it easier to listen, makes it easier to respond. Makes it easier to be a good friend, a good teammate. So I want you to think about what your local, simple, and shared rules are and write them down. Have that conversation with your team. Now, we've been working on thinking about those rules for organizations and businesses, and I'd like to share them with you. So steering towards your customer, teams should serve external or internal customers. And the distance between you and your customer should be as small as possible, both in time and physical distance. Steer towards internal alignment. Teams should have cross-communication and cross-collaboration towards achieving their aligned objectives. Steer towards autonomy. Teams should be able to quickly concept and validate their own new ideas 
with little to no oversight or dependencies on people outside their team. So take these back to your team. Think about the flock of birds. Have the conversation. Tell me what happened. So all of this work that I've shared has given me, has given me power. And I'm really fascinated by how our concept of power is changing because in the past power, the rules were really clear. Power was something that was to be seized and then jealously guarded. But now new power operates differently and it's much more like water or electricity and it's most powerful when it surges and the goal of it is not to guard it but to channel it and share it. And I hope that I can inspire you to think about the power that you have and how you can use that power to make things better. So in our house, we call this the day that a prince had the opportunity to meet baby Atlas. Um, but gaining positions of power takes a lot of hard work and it definitely isn't something that anybody achieves on their own. I really try to make a very conscious effort to stay connected to the people who guide me and believe in me now and people who have done throughout the last 10 years. And now I take it really seriously that I'm in a position where people invite me to come on stage, that I have a responsibility to believe in others and to make that journey easier for other people. Because when you gain power, you have an amazing ability to provide opportunities for other people. And I want to use my platform to give a voice to others instead of just building a taller podium for myself. But the reality of that is I'm learning every day to allow the space between where I am and where I want to be to feel inspiring instead of frightening. My teammate at Nobel Bud calls it the frightened, scary squirrel feeling. And it means that most days I feel like this. And I think it's important that we're honest about that. This is what I was doing this morning in my hotel room, spinning around in my head. Honesty gets people's attention. It's important to be honest and it's important to be honest with yourself because we are all victims of the fraud police. The fraud police are an imaginary, they are imaginary, terrifying force of real grown-ups who you believe at some subconscious level are one day going to knock on your door in the middle of the night and say, we've been watching you and we've got shit ton of evidence that you have got no idea what you're doing. <laughs> and you are officially accused of the crime of completely making it up as you go along. You do not deserve your job. We're going to tell everybody and we're going to take everything away. Now, we must beat the fraud police. And we must talk about even despite our, the fraud police, when we do great work and good things happen, I was in the same magazine as Miley Cyrus. This feels like an important thing to share. But when we do, when we recognize our privilege, we need to realize that privilege in itself is not bad. What matters with it is what we do with that privilege. Now, I want to live in a world where all women have access to education, where all women can earn PhDs. Privilege doesn't have to be negative. We have to share our resources and think about how we can use our privilege in ways that empower people who lack it. 
So unless you do something with it, any amount of power or recognition or successful symbols or statuses don't really matter. It's what you do with it that counts. So this is the problem that I'm trying to solve through Upfront. This is a situation that I often find myself in. And this problem is real. <laughs> I cannot stress to you, I could write a book about how big this problem is. Design is still 70% white and 60% male. This is embarrassing. It's our responsibility to fix that. We must change it. Change happens from the bottom up, not the top down. If we wait for a design body or our government to change it, they won't. And I always say, don't wait for things to change. Be the, ch be the person who makes them change. So I hope that up front, will start to change conferences. We've had over 500 people sit on an upfront couch around the world at lots of different events. And I hope it's challenging your perceptions of what power looks like. I hope it's making you ask yourself, if you could be on stage one day, who do you see on stage? What do you think power looks like? For those of you who are on stage, how can you share that power to make conferences more diverse? So one of the shared rules that we have in our house, and I stole this from Swiss Miss, um, a designer in New York, that you're only allowed to complain about something three times and then you have to try and make it better. So this was the day that I really had used up my complaint tokens and decided to try and make it better. And I did this by putting a post-it note in the women's toilets. There was no strategy. There was no business plan. There was just an insight. And there was a desire to change things. And through having conversations with the people who queued up to talk to me because of this post-it, I realized that one of the barriers to people being up here, as I talked about earlier, is the physical act of standing on a stage. It's so scary that people don't even think that they might be able to do it themselves one day. So I prototyped it and it worked. And I realized the power of that you can't be what you can't see. We need to fill our stages with people who look and sound different. And this is why it's had the impact it's had, because people like Steve go to America and they share their power and invite people onto their stage. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for having me at Midwest UX. I'd like to take a moment to explain my guests on stage. Um, so, Upfront has had over 500 people sit on the Upfront couch at events around the world. I want to share some snippets of and uh, TEDx Dundee. This was a really uh, different experience because I felt really comfortable and really warm on stage. And I think I'm just getting a lot more comfortable with the environment. And I think with even more practice, I'll just be able to slip right through. Like, it's another natural habitat. What 
this is my first time at Upfront and um, it really felt like job shadowing a speaker. It was really amazing to see the green room and then sort of that transition onto the stage and it felt really comfortable and a nice way to get a sneak peek into what goes into public speaking. It was a little nerve-wracking when we were being introduced but I think that was a nice step to start getting more comfortable. So we know that if you sit on stage, you sit on stage safely and quietly with no pressure to perform, you are 30% more likely to speak at an event yourself one day. And I think that's quite special, given the millions of pounds we're pouring into diversity programs that actually rarely have very tangible results. And all you need is a couch. But for the rebels in the room who are thinking, I could be up front at my next event or my uh, next team meeting, you have to come through our team first. Because we need the data, of course, but also it's a, it's a sensitive thing that I've spent three years really crafting the experience of. So send me an email if you'd love to be up front one day and we can make it happen. And when people sit on the couch, they bounce off and they say, okay, I'm ready, what's next? I want to go on a course or read a book or like, what have you got for me? And I didn't have anything. So I invented a training course that is very different to the products and services that exist in the world around confidence. Right now, the products and services around confidence are usually quite American, very aggressive, and portray this kind of rule book of ingredients that we all need to follow so that we can be the world's version of confident. And I'm starting a new conversation about confidence that's about vulnerability and openness and kindness, and it's not about being an extrovert or being loud or even about being on stage at all. It's about finding your own version of what confident looks like in a way that makes sense to you. So I want to wrap up by sharing some actions, some things that you can do, because I think what you do has far greater impact than what you say. And there are some really simple things that we can all do. So if you call all the men in your team, sweetie or honey, then you can keep doing that and call everybody the same thing. But if you don't, the women that I know prefer to be called by their names. A very small daily thing that each of us can do that will make a difference. Don't use words for women like empower or celebrate. Use words like hire, pay, fund, promote. And I must credit Cindy Gallup for this insight. You can't pay rent on exposure. If you want to empower women or people from marginalized groups, pay them. Cite diverse people. I am so bored of sitting through presentations that quote Steve Jobs and Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk because there are so many more versions of entrepreneurship, of designers, of inspiring people that don't look like white men. So let's all be more diverse in what we read, what we write, what we publish, and what we acknowledge. At work, learn in the open. So how many of you own yourownname.com? How many of you are blogging and sharing what you're learning on that domain? Big mistake. 
It's our responsibility to control the narrative about how the rest of the world understands design. It's up to us to tell those stories. So get online, use the tools, and learn in the open. Be accessible, be findable, help other people who want to be like you, because actually there are lots of people who are inspired by each of you. At home, if you're a man, do more, and if you're a woman, do less. At UX Australia, let's not ask the question, what do you do? Because it makes a lot of people feel ill. It's just not a good question. Instead, let's think about, what's your story? Forget titles, forget the what do you do question, listen, be curious, be kind, and asking people what their story is, I've found is a much kinder, more open way to start a conversation with strangers. Because relationships are all that there is. This is all about the power of all of us coming together. There is no hero, there is no Elon Musk being a dick at the front of the bird flock. <laughs> this is about all of us being united as one, tackling problems at different parts of the system, going in the same direction, to ultimately make things better. So think about your shared and your local rules, share your power, realize that togetherness is our strength. Each of us inside all have this indomitable human spirit. We all know people around us who are working really hard at something and inspiring others and won't give up. Hold on to that collective optimism. This is a photograph of a tool that I used with a young girl called Alice who was building a tech product and I was helping her think about the five, ten year journey ahead of her kind of entrepreneurial uh, journey that she was on. And she said to me, I've always wanted to change the world and now that I'm 12, I know that I can definitely do this. So let's hold on to that. You're all invited. We're all in this together. I want to end by, in a moment, giving our upfront women a huge round of applause. I'm sure, hope, no. I'm sure none of you have been looking at me thinking the whole time, I don't know what she's on about, I don't know why she's up there. I'm sure none of you are thinking that about them. But we all think that everybody else is thinking that and nobody's thinking that. And nobody will think that about you either. That's what we need to hold on to. Stop worrying about what other people think. You will be so much freer to tackle the things that matter to you. Huge round of applause for our amazing guests. Okay. Thank you very much. Do we have, are we doing questions or are we done? No. Okay. No. <laughs> no. No. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. 
For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.